0: If you made a list of the biggest issues that trouble and plague our souls today, I wonder what would be on it. For some of us, our pasts hang over us like a dark cloud. We carry around a lot of guilt or shame. And really, our shame can be all-consuming over actions we've done or addictions that we've battled in our lives. For others, our present issues trouble us most. Either hostility or oppression from other people or our suffering or really our own pride and our sin, our difficulties and frustration in changing ourselves. And for others, the future looms largest in our anxieties. We are fearful of what might happen. And truly, there are so many things that we could understandably worry about. And you could add other things to your list, but I have a feeling that some of these are near the top for all of us. Our shame from our past, our sins in our present, and our fears about the future. So what if I told you that God plans to reverse or transform all of these things? Once and for all. Would you believe me? Does it sound too good to be true? Because I believe that God's word tells us this very thing. And this is not just wishful or fanciful thinking as it is grounded in nothing less than the promises of God. So I'd like to to show you this today from a place where God's own words are recorded for us in Zephaniah chapter 3. So you can please turn there with me at this time, Zephaniah chapter 3, and if you have no idea where to find that, don't be afraid to use the index, or if you're using one of the Bibles in front of you, it's on page 790. We've been talking several, or taking several weeks this summer to go through Zephaniah together. But while there has been a smattering of good news throughout the book, it's been almost all bad news so far. Quite dark and depressing, one might say. Leading up to our passage today, Zephaniah talked about the Lord judging all peoples of the earth, which he would do for several reasons, to restore the humble and desolate the proud, to display his justice And to draw all nations to himself. But the end of last week was bleak. As Zephaniah foresaw all the earth consumed by God's wrath. And it said this in verse 8. Therefore, wait for me, declares the Lord, for the day when I rise up to seize the prey... For my decision is to gather nations, to assemble kingdoms, to pour out upon them my indignation, all my burning anger. For in the fire of my jealousy, all the earth shall be consumed. However, the day of the Lord, which is when this will all happen, is two-sided. It's always two-sided in Scripture. Not only will judgment be meted out, accompanied by the, the doom and darkness that we've seen, but the Lord will also bring salvation, restoration, and light. Because God is not only holy, righteous, and just, He is love-defined. He's merciful. He's forgiving. He's not only The judge and executioner, he's also the savior and the life giver. Therefore, his judgment is not the end of the story. It's really more a means to an end. And the end goal we see here isn't the total annihilation of all peoples, but instead the purification and restoration of all peoples to the Lord. So God's judgment would actually cause strife, enmity, sin, and evil to disappear forever. That's why God's judgment is actually good news. And it would pave the way for peace to reign, for God to be glorified. And what will happen to the people who... Humbly seek the Lord in dark days. Will they just get swept up in God's judgment and, and bunched together with the wicked? No. We will all stand before God on judgment day. Yes, but there will be remarkably, a remarkably different outcome, a merciful outcome for God's people. And not just for Israel or Judah, like here in the Old Testament, but for people from all nations who worship the Lord. I'll tell you what I think we're going to see in today's passage, and then I'll show you from the text. And that's that the the people of the Lord, the people of the Lord will be completely transformed on the day of the Lord. The people of the Lord will be completely transformed on the day of the Lord. Remember, verse 9 here is the pivot point of the entire book. Everything changes right here. He says, For at that time, this is the Lord speaking still, For at that time I will change the speech of the peoples to a pure speech that all of them may call upon the name of the Lord and serve him with one accord. For at that time, what time? Well, verse 8 told us, when he gathers nations for judgment, when he might wait for me for the day when I rise up to seize the prey. My decision is to gather nations, to assemble kingdoms. But, but coinciding with his judgment, he says, for at that time, I will change the speech of the peoples to a pure speech that all of them may call upon the name of the Lord and serve him with one accord. Now, we're going to get into that this is the speech part of this. But you really could sum up the whole passage as the Lord changing His people. Period. This is what God is up to. God's plan for His people, both His people in the past and His people like us now, is to radically and completely transform us from prideful sinners to purified saints. And this is... No, become a better you, or have a new you by Friday self-help plan. (laughs) Nor is it some extreme makeover that just modifies your outer appearance. This is total transformation from the inside out that we cannot dream to produce ourselves. Only God has the ability to change us like this. And he promises he will. For at that time, I will change the speech of the peoples to a pure speech, that all of them may call upon the name of the Lord and serve him with one accord. But if you've been with us lately, you may feel like this verse gives you a bit of whiplash. (laughs) How does this amazing promise jive with all the comprehensive judgment we've seen in Zephaniah? We don't fully understand exactly how these extremes will play out. But in history, if you you look at it, both of these things, to a lesser degree, have in fact come true over and over again. Like All the nations that were mentioned, Philistia, Moab, Ammon, Cush, Assyria, and Judah, they all experienced terrible devastation. God's judgment did fall on them. And at the same time, God has also brought the nations together under Christ. And a a holy remnant of his people, both Jews and Gentiles, continues to be assembled. Just look around. It's happened. And he's only just gotten started on us. So what might his completed work look like? I think the rest of our passage today gives us a little glimpse, little glimpses into some of what this will entail, what it will look like. So the people of the Lord will be completely transformed on the day of the Lord. And first, we can see that he will purify our speech into united worship, right? The Lord will purify our speech into a globally united worship of him, If you think of all our regrets in life, how many of them are over things that we say? So many of them, right? I guess that not many days go by that I don't regret something or other I said. There are so many ways for us to sin against God and other people with our words, our speech. Remember Isaiah. Isaiah had a a vision of the Lord high and lifted up as the angels cry, holy, holy, holy. And what was Isaiah's gut reaction? He was horrified. Woe is me. Why? Because in the presence of God's holiness, our impurity becomes obvious, our unholiness. And one particular impurity in Isaiah's case. He said, Woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of what? Unclean lips. And I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. And then as believers in Christ... We hear Jesus tell us that we will give an account on Judgment Day for every careless word we ever speak. We start to get scared. So in light of our own impure speech, this promise, sounds like water for a parched tongue, doesn't it? God will do what we find so difficult, actually impossible to do, taming our tongues, (laughs) cleansing our lips, atoning for our guilt. For at that time, I will change the speech of the peoples to a pure speech. However, something deeper is going on here than merely purifying us from sin. Remember that Zephaniah just got done pronouncing judgment specifically on Jerusalem, right? The the Hebrew people, singular, who remained in Judah, yet were going astray. But now God says he's going to change the speech of the peoples, plural. This right after saying he was going to gather nations and assemble kingdoms, going to purify the speech of the peoples. So the Lord is, is going to bring the nations, the peoples together to worship him, really, in unity. That's what he says. I will change their speech to a pure speech. Why? That all of them may call upon the name of the Lord and serve him with one accord. But he'll do this by purifying their speech. Or you could say by unifying their language. See, it's actually pretty neat here. Scholars believe that this actually appears to be a reversal of the Tower of Babel, where many peoples had their languages confused by God and were scattered apart. In Zephaniah, he promises to do the reverse, to gather them together and unify their speech, bring it together. At Babel, people sought to exalt themselves, even deify themselves, so the Lord separated them, but now he's promising that he's going to bring them all together to worship and serve God with one accord, to exalt him side by side, shoulder to shoulder. And then verse 10 says, from beyond the rivers of Cush, my worshipers, the daughter of my dispersed ones, shall bring my offering. So those scattered abroad from faraway lands would come together. And why? Again, in order to worship God, bringing offerings to him. This is his goal. So this was a, a really great reversal of Babel. It was also a vision of what would happen at pentecost you know pentecost right or shortly after jesus returned to heaven the holy spirit fell upon his followers and they began preaching in the streets of jerusalem in their native tongue in hebrew but they were understood in any language like god literally and supernaturally changed their speech in their mouths, so that many people ended up calling upon the name of the Lord. And the church was brought together as a new, diverse, yet unified people of God. On that day, Peter quoted another prophet, Joel, who perhaps quoted from Zephaniah, saying, and it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. So do you see? The gathering of the nations, the changing of speech, and the calling on the name of the Lord lie at the very heart and the foundation of the church of Christ. Again, we can see ourselves As part of the fulfillment of Zephaniah's prophecies. We get to call on the name of the Lord to serve him. United together as his people now. Coming from the furthest reaches of the globe. Cush and even farther. And still, we believe this hasn't been fulfilled to its fullest yet. But it will be when Christ comes again. And does this for good. Taking... People from divided by nationality or tribal identity or language and uniting us. That's a great multitude before his throne. So that, again, same goal, we cry out with one loud, purified voice. Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. You know when you're talking with someone about random stuff and maybe you're not connecting much with them, but suddenly they start talking about something you're really into. Say a a book, or a sport, or, or food, or a show, we go, now you're talking my language. <laughs> right? We, we totally get it. We can relate to it. We, we want to talk about it too. I hope that for those who love the Lord, when others start talking about the Lord, even if you've got nothing else in common, you can go, now you're talking my language. (laughs) Because really, he's given us a common language now centered on God. He's in the process of purifying our speech from both sin and division. He's undistorting it. And really, there's no greater subject for our lips to dwell on no greater purpose for our lives. And we're going to spend eternity joyously serving him together. But why don't we actually start doing this now? Let me ask you three questions based on these verses. First, have you called upon the name of the Lord, seeking him for salvation? Like everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved from sin, from judgment. Like this is true for us, because Jesus died under God's judgment and rose from the dead in our place. So when we believe this, when we confess Him as Lord, He saves us. And if you've never done this before, what are you waiting for? Like we've prayed specifically for you today. Your heart would be changed by the Lord. Second question is that, are you a worshiper of the Lord? And he says, I'm going to, my worshippers will come from beyond the rivers of Cush to bring my offering. Are, are you a worshiper of the Lord? If, if Jesus has saved you, you are meant to be. But are you living that out? Would your friends and family recognize you as such? What a privilege we have to come before the Lord and respond to his greatness together. Third question. Do you faithfully serve the Lord shoulder to shoulder with other believers? We don't serve him so that he saves us. That would completely reverse the order of what's going on here. We serve gladly because we're saved. So do you? When and how are you serving him? If you can't point to anywhere, we have lots of ways you could serve here at Calvary. But I don't say that just to recruit you as a volunteer. I say it because the Lord is worthy of your life. You're all. So, are you his? Like These are eternal realities and blessings, privileges, that we get to start participating in even now. Now, after all the darkness that was foretold over the first two and a half chapters, just imagine hearing these words that in spite of all their sin, their idolatry, complacency, oppression, rebellion, in spite of all that, there was hope for the people of God. They were going to come through this. Like There's no explanation for this outside the mercy and grace of God. And weighed down by our own sin... We might struggle to think that this could be true of us. Because we're disgusted by our apathy, and our lust, and our anger, and our selfishness, and our pride. So, it's really good news that the Lord plans to transform all of that. See, when the Lord transforms his people on the day of the Lord, he will remove our pride to make us humble and holy. He will remove our pride once for all to make us humble and holy. Listen to what we read last week, beginning in chapter 3 said, woe to her who is rebellious and defiled, the oppressing city. She listens to no voice. She accepts no correction. She does not trust in the Lord. She does not draw near to her God. Verse 5 said, every morning God shows forth his justice. Each John, he does not fail, but the unjust knows no shame. Now contrast that, compare that to this in verse 11. On that day... You shall not be put to shame because of the deeds by which you have rebelled against me for then I will remove from your midst your proudly exultant ones and you shall no longer be haughty in my holy mountain but I will leave in your midst a people humble and lowly Like these people never in a million years deserve to not be put to shame And here's the Lord promising mercy beyond belief to them. On that day, you shall not be put to shame because of the deeds by which you've rebelled against me. No shame coming for you. Palmer Robertson marvels here. He says, how great will be that day in which all shame will be removed from the community of God's people. Not only will guilt be eliminated, all the crippling psychological effects of sin shall be wiped away. That will be so great. But this could only really happen if their sin was somehow removed from them. On one level, this would happen as... As God removed especially proud and sinful people from among them, as He said, "For then I will remove from your midst your proudly exultant ones." Addition by subtraction. Pride goes before destruction. Like if you think you have a, you definitely, you absolutely have no need or use for God. That you're independent, self-made, self-sufficient. Watch out. You think, I'm happy on my own. I'm just going to live it up. Careful now. Your pride, arrogance, and exaltation cuts against the grain of the universe. It's a delusional denial of who you really are before your creator. And only once proudly exultant people are removed from society will it be purified. However, this doesn't tell the whole story because was there anyone totally innocent of pride? I don't get that impression from the book of Zephaniah. Yes, there were humble people, but the... The culture as a whole had been so permeated by pride that everyone was infected by it. And look at ver- the end of verse 11 here, where it says, and you shall no longer be haughty in my holy mountain. So in other words, there are people who were haughty or proud who would not be anymore. They'd be purified. Again, this is a grace. It's impossible without the gospel. It's impossible without Christ's payment for sin, ultimately. And again, this is a radical transformation. Think about it, humility can seem so impossible to attain, because as soon as we start feeling like we're humble, we get proud about our humility, (laughs) start patting ourselves on the back, Pride is deep-seated. It's relentless. So for God to say that we shall no longer be haughty, never again will we have to fight our pride, that will require supernatural change within us. And God promises this will happen. Just imagine a world without pride. Pride. Try. We will dwell on his holy mountain, Zion, the new Jerusalem, a holy people for a holy city. God will leave, he says, a core of people behind after his judgment, those who have been finally made humble and holy by him. Verse 12, but I will leave in your midst a people humble and lowly. Now, the word lowly can also be translated poor. But this isn't talking about physically poor people. This is talking about people who recognize themselves as spiritually poor or poor in spirit. I recognize that from Jesus' words. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. To be poor in spirit is to realize you have nothing in yourself of spiritual worth or value on your own. That you are poor, bankrupt even, on your own. That you desperately need the Lord and His riches. Have you ever found yourself in a situation where you really failed at something, fell short in some area? Maybe your performance was judged or graded and you got a, a really humbling score. Perhaps at a, a music recital where you just hit all the wrong notes or a sporting event when the other team hit all the shots and you didn't or at a, in a school or work presentation that's a nightmare or business failure. Like these... Experiences can crush us. I was recently reading an author talk about what our options are in these scenarios, when they happen to us, when we fail. Either we pretend like our performance wasn't that bad, when we know it really was pretty bad, (laughs) terrible maybe. Or we make excuses, trying to, to shift the blame to others. Terrible refs. (laughs) Or we can just give up and quit on the whole thing in despair. But then this author asks, Ian Duguid, he says, What do you do, though, when a similarly crushing verdict is rendered on your entire life? And not just your own life, but that of everyone around you. What if the way you entered this world was all wrong and your trajectory has been downhill from there onward? Do we have the same choices? Right? You can bluff, pretend like we aren't disasters, dishonestly pass the buck, or do we give in to despair, accepting the loser label for the rest of our miserable lives? Or, is there another option? The option of humility? He claims the Bible presents a way of hope for outcasts and losers that doesn't depend on pretending to be something that we are not. He, it recognizes with clear eyes the awful truth about the sin and evil that infest our society and inhabits each of our hearts an evil that cries out for divine judgment. Yet at the same time, the Bible celebrates an incredible love that stretches down into this sinful world to rescue broken people whose lives are littered with profound and repeated personal failure. It tells us of a merciful God who scoops us up in his arms, wiping away our disastrous record of sin and failure and replacing our despair with wild, exultant joy. See, being humble and lowly doesn't mean what we might think it means. Like we might think it means being low and depressed. Maybe even humiliated, going around like Eeyore, always mopey and sad. (laughs) No, true humility is a contentment. It's a peace, a confidence, and it leads to joy because we recognize our true place in the universe. We see God in his glory and we know how life is meant to be lived in relation to him. We see our need, our desperate need, but we also see God's supplication of our need. And we're so grateful for his mercy that saves sinners like us. Humility is free. Relaxing. Like We don't need... To be any kind of impressive big shot anymore. God's got that covered. He's the only great one that the world needs. Like, like don't you want? I want to be relieved of the burden to be someone I'm not, to be greater than I really am. I want that peace and that freedom to be exactly who God created me to be and who he's making me to be. Like, If you don't think that sounds amazing, I don't know what else to tell you. But guess what? It's actually going to happen to the people of God. It says, I'm going to leave in your midst to people who are humble and lowly. Once we're humble, we'll naturally seek all our refuge in God, not ourselves. The end of verse 12 says, they shall seek refuge in the name of the Lord. And we've seen all along in Zephaniah that our only hope to be saved from the wrath of God is to humbly find refuge in God. Nothing in us is going to rescue us on his day. Here the promise is that that God will actually turn our hearts toward Him again. Now, think about it. You may be discouraged by your own continual turning to other things in life to ease the uneasiness in your soul. Trying to, to make God happy, working so hard to do it, religious activities, family time, hard work or maybe trying to distract yourself from all this with entertainment, or holidays, or food, or sex. This is good news for us. That if we find our refuge in God, today, one day, we won't be double-minded or distracted anymore. We We'll seek him wholeheartedly. What about all our other sin besides pride? Don't worry, those are going to be included in our transformation. Like I said, we'll be humble and holy. As verse 13 continues, those who are left in Israel, they shall do no injustice and speak no lies, nor shall there be found in their mouth a deceitful tongue. Now remember verse 5 last week where it said, the Lord within her is righteous. He does no injustice. Every morning he shows forth his justice. Each dawn he does not fail. And now this is saying this about us. Like once the Lord transforms us, we will share characteristics with the Lord himself. We will do no injustice. And like we, nor no wrongs at all. We will speak no lies, no cover-ups, no flattery, no seduction, no manipulation, no exaggeration, no slander, a deceit of all kind will be non-existent in the new creation, even in our own mouths. Now, do you know the only other person in the Old Testament who said to not have a deceitful tongue? The suffering servant in Isaiah 53, who we know to be talking about Jesus. So again, we will be recreated in the image of our Savior. But Again, imagine this. Imagine a world where absolutely, everyone is absolutely trustworthy. That's certainly not our reality today. But it will be one day. Right now, we are being gradually changed and renewed. We call this process sanctification. We are being made holy by the Spirit's power. We are learning how to live holy and godly lives, becoming more like Christ day by day. But for now, as you know, this is often an up and down, start and stop, two steps forward, one step back. It's sometimes maddening. We long to be holy. We long to be free from sin's power. So hear it now, Christian. One day you will be. If you are in Christ, and we already believe that you're seen as holy now, Treated by God in the same way Jesus is treated. In other words, we're justified. But one day, that heavenly reality that we have will perfectly match who we are on the earth, our earthly identity. And, and like the culmination of our sanctification, we will be like Him, for we shall see Him as He is. Honestly, outside of getting to see Christ, see God face to face, to see Jesus, I don't think there's an aspect of Christ's return I look more forward to than being totally freed from my own sin forever. Right? Can you imagine never again hurting people around you with your words or actions? Can you imagine not being tempted or enticed toward anything evil ever Again? Can you imagine not being angry anymore? Not feeling guilty again. Weighed down. Not having anything to be anxious or depressed about anymore. It's gone. Start imagining. And start believing. Because this comes from God himself who is 100% trustworthy. It's going to happen. Now, today's passage ends in a pretty interesting way. It tells us the reason behind our holiness. Put it another way. Why will we be made holy, humble and holy on the day of the Lord? How will this happen? See if you can tell. Look at the logic here. Verse 13 again. Those who are left in Israel, they shall do no injustice and speak no lies, nor shall there be found in their mouth a deceitful tongue. For they shall graze and lie down, and none shall make them afraid. So they'll be holy. Why? It says, for they shall graze, lie down, not be afraid. What does that mean? It means that the Lord has taken care of all his people's needs. So our holiness flows out of being content and satisfied by the Lord. Think of it from another angle. Why do we sin, really, in the first place? Usually it's It's misplaced desires, right? Instead of desiring God, we desire all kinds of other things. And in our pride, we think we know better or that we can satisfy ourselves. But in eternity, this says, uh, if all our needs and desires are forever satisfied by the Lord, why would we ever turn to sin again? Here's the final point. That the people of the Lord will be completely transformed on the day of the Lord as he will satisfy us all with himself. He'll satisfy our souls. He'll satisfy our glorified bodies. He'll satisfy us all with himself. For they shall graze and lie down and none shall make them afraid. It's such a, a peaceful, idyllic picture. We'll be like sheep, eating, and resting. Now, assuming that most of you don't have experience tending sheep, have you ever seen sheep on the side of the road in a farmer's field? What do they usually look like? Just Standing around, relaxed, munching on grass, lounging in the shade, not a care in the world. It's a picture of contentment, no anxiety. They shall graze and lie down and none shall make them afraid. We know sheep may get agitated, but only when their needs are unmet or a predator is in their midst. None of that's happening to God's people in eternity. We will eat and rest in perfect safety because God himself will satisfy us. We won't need anything else. I like the messages paraphrase here. It says, content with who they are and where they are, unanxious, they'll live at peace. Content with who they are and where they are. Unanxious, they'll live at peace. Like, how different is that from our frenetically busy and anxiety-riddled lives? I mean, how many of us are really content with who we are or where we are in life? Not many of us. Which is why we work so hard and rest so poorly. But we won't feel any discontentment or dissatisfaction anymore when this happens, we won't feel any fear anymore. Like, we may make attempts at at resting better or being content in this life, as we should. We should try to figure out what makes us fearful and give those fears over to God. But only on that day will we be forever and fully satisfied by our good shepherd. So, my question for you now is how much are you anticipating the day of the Lord? Are you still dreading it? If you are not in Christ, then seek your refuge in Him today. But if you are in Christ, you have no need to fear the coming day at all. None. You can and really should look forward to it with all your heart. If then, When we have this firm, daily hope in the return of Christ and really the restoration of paradise under him, it drastically changes how we live today. Because we live with hope and joy and peace now. Because this is coming. We start resting better now. Trusting the Lord more in our trials now. Because this is coming. See, this future reality is something we get to experience, we begin to experience even now, even today. As we worship and serve alongside the united people of God, as we sense the forgiveness of the Lord, the freedom that He gives us in this, from the shame of sin, and as we feel the, the gentle, gentle, Tender, faithful care of our great shepherd of the sheep. Like all of these are ways the Lord is already at work transforming us. But one day, we'll really be changed. As Paul put it in 1 Corinthians 15, Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. Bank on it. Hope for it. Hope in him. Like our ongoing work of transformation will be completed one day, but not by us. And don't just take my word for it. Take God's word for it. It says, And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion. When? At the day of Jesus Christ. Now notice the change in language there. The day of the Lord... Is now more specifically defined as the day of the Lord Jesus Christ. He will get the glory on that day. And we'll be forever blessed in Him. He has started this work, He will be faithful to complete it. So do you trust Him? Let's pray. Father, please work in us that which is pleasing to you. Today, change our hearts now. Transform us. Bring life to the dead among us. Help all of us to grow in love for you, for others around us. And one day we look forward to this, God, where you have completely changed our hearts. God, give us hope. Help us not despair. Help us not give up. We keep our eyes fixed on you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.